you have your Bible with you, if you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, we are in Hebrews chapter 13 today, we are reading verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. All right, so I'd like to begin with a pop quiz today. For those of you who are going back to school this week, don't have to worry about the grade. Okay, you'll be fine. Uh, But here's the pop quiz question that we have. How many hours do Christians spend worshiping Jesus on Sundays? How many hours do we worship Jesus on Sundays? I think most Christians would say that they worship Jesus for about an hour on Sunday, give or take a few minutes. Now, I would agree that most Christians go to worship services that last for about an hour on Sundays. But here is the truth. Christians worship Jesus for 24 hours a day on Sunday. In fact, Christians worship Jesus 24 hours a day every day. You see, the word worship means to serve. And on Sundays, we Christians serve Jesus by singing his praise, by praying to him, by giving to his church, and by hearing his word preached and applied to our lives. But our worship and our service to Jesus do not stop when we leave church. We continue to worship Jesus in different ways all day long. We worship Jesus as Christians all of the time. Now, believe it or not, we have actually reached the last chapter in Hebrews. We started this series on how Jesus is greater than everything back at the end of January, and we are going to finish it next week. The main theme of the book of Hebrews is perseverance. I suppose I should thank you for persevering with this series for so long, so I do say thank you very much. But I also trust that this book of Hebrews has helped to encourage you to persevere in your faith, to stick with it in these difficult days. The author has been encouraging his readers and us to keep the faith in Jesus. Don't fall away from your faith, he says. Don't throw away your faith in Jesus, but cling to him. We begin our life of faith in Jesus when we repent of our sin, and when we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and when we believe that Jesus died in our place, we are forgiven, and then we have open access to our holy God, who then becomes our heavenly Father. And then we persevere in our faith, we keep going by worshiping Jesus all day, every day. At the end of Hebrews chapter 12, we read last week in verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship. But you might ask, well, how do we worship God acceptably as we 
persevere in our faith. So let's look at Hebrews 13 this morning and see two ways that we as Christians worship God. First of all, you worship God by loving your Christian family. If you have faith in Jesus, one of the things that changes about you after you come to faith in Christ is that you begin to love all of the people in Christ's church. You love other Christians. You don't just put up with them. No, you truly love them as part of your family. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 1 commands us, let brotherly love continue. Now, obviously, the key word in this verse is love. There is nothing more important than love within Christianity. But I don't want you to overlook the word continue in this verse either. The word continue reminds us of the theme of perseverance in the book of Hebrews. We are to persevere to keep going in loving our brothers and sisters no matter how hard it gets. We are to persevere in our love. And what kind of love do we persevere in? Verse 1 says that we are to persevere in brotherly love. This is literally the word Philadelphia in verse 1. Some of you know that the city of Philadelphia has a nickname. I'll put that nickname up on our screen right now. Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. Now, not really. If you go to Philadelphia, those people aren't exactly very loving. They once booed Santa Claus at a football game. So the people of Philadelphia are not exactly known for their great love. But Philadelphia, the word literally means brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. And so uh, this is the kind of love that we Christians are to have. Brotherly love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, as a Christian, you are related to every other Christian in this room this morning. The people sitting near you may not be your blood relatives, but you are related to the people in the church because of your common faith in Jesus Christ. And what do relatives do? They love each other even if they don't always get along so great. They love one another. Love for each other in the church that is the distinguishing mark of Christians. I'd like for us to read out loud together the words of Jesus from John chapter 13 and verse 35. Let's read those words together. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, how can I tell if you are a Christian? If I look at you and I see that you are loving other Christians, I say, well, there's another Christian. They love other Christians. That's what marks other Christians. Okay, you say, but how do I show love for another Christian? How do I do that? What are some practical things that I can do? Well, one practical thing you can do is found in verse 2. It says there that we are not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Some of you might think, Hospitality? Really? Is that so significant that I should show hospitality to others? Is that really a big deal? Does that really show love? Yes. Yes, it does. 
Now, by hospitality, the author here is not really talking about what we might call entertaining today. It doesn't mean that you invite some friends from the church over to your house for a meal. That's not the hospitality that the author is talking about. Now, that is a good thing to do, to invite people from church over to your house. That is good. And honestly, if you invite me over to your house for food, I will be there. I will especially be there if you have chocolate for dessert. It's a good thing to have people over to your house who are fellow Christians. But the hospitality that's talked about here in Hebrews 13 and verse 2 is a different kind. This is meeting the needs of people from the church who are outside of the people that you really know. Verse 2 says that these people are strangers to you right now. And those strangers that you meet in the church, they have needs. And so this kind of hospitality perhaps means inviting perhaps a a visiting missionary to our church over to your home to stay on the night before they share with us on Sunday morning. Or perhaps this kind of hospitality means bringing someone from a church over to your home who loses their heat in the wintertime. They don't have heat and you do at your house. So you invite them over to stay with you so that they can be comfortable overnight. Or perhaps this kind of hospitality means talking to someone after church and you notice that they seem sad or lonely in some way and you say, maybe I should have them over to my home to to talk to them and to encourage them, to build them up. That's the kind of hospitality that's being talked about. Taking someone who is outside of your circle of friends, bringing them into your home, and encouraging them, loving them, and meeting their needs. That is hospitality. And the thing about hospitality is you never know who you're bringing into your house. Verse 2 says that some hospitable people have entertained angels unaware. And what this means is the author of Hebrews is referring to a a few stories from the book of Genesis in which uh, Abraham and Lot brought those that they thought were people into their homes, but actually they turned out to be angels. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? The thought that we might be bringing angels into our home unaware. But what is the real point of what he is getting at here in Hebrews 13? He is asking the church, are you hospitable? Do you invite people over to your home from the church that you don't know? And do you encourage them and meet their needs? That's the kind of hospitality that shows brotherly Christian love. Now, another practical way that we Christians show love to other Christians is found in verse 3, where it says that we are to remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. You see, in the first century, Christians were thrown into jail just for being Christians. That's not just in the first century, that's in our century, too. Many Christians around the world are in jail today simply because they love Jesus. And the people in the government there do not love Jesus, and so they have put them in prison. Other Christians in the first century were mistreated, it says. They were robbed, according to Hebrews 10 and verse 34, just because they were a minority who could be easily persecuted and no one would know the difference. No one would care if Christians were persecuted. So what would be the temptation if you saw a Christian from your church thrown into jail? 
what would be your temptation? The temptation would be, I'm not going to go to jail to visit that person. If I go to the jail and the jailer or someone else sees me, they might ask me this question. You're not one of those people too, are you? You're not a Christian, are you? It would be facing persecution yourself if you went to visit a fellow Christian in jail. But love would say, I'm going to ignore the potential for persecution. Love would say, I'm going to the church to visit my Christian relative, even if that means persecution for me. And so love in the first century also meant bringing food and medicine to your Christian brothers and sisters in jail. Today, I would say love means any, visiting any Christian who is suffering. Not necessarily those who are in jail, but it means to visit anyone who is suffering. The key word in verse 3 is to remember. Don't forget those who are suffering. Love them. Visit them. They are part of your body, according to verse 3. And when one part of your body hurts, you should hurt with them. You are to weep with those who weep. That is love. How many of you have to watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer at Christmas time? How many of you have to do that for your Christmas to be complete? Okay, So a lot of you are in that boat. And one part of that movie is when Rudolph and his friends, they visit a special place called the Island of Misfit Toys. Remember that part of the movie? Okay. They see toys that are so strange that no child would ever play with them. The island has a Charlie in the box instead of a Jack in the box. The island has this toy train with square wheels instead of round wheels. And the island has this water pistol that shoots jello and not water. Okay. These toys are all complete misfits. And after seeing all these toys, Rudolph says to his friends, you know, I'm a misfit too. I have a, a red nose. No other reindeer has a red nose. And so I am a misfit. And so Rudolph found his heart going out to these misfit toys. He felt love for them because he also was a misfit. Church, I want to ask you today if you realize how the world sees you. I hate to break it to you. But the world sees the church as the island of misfit toys. We don't really fit in this world. We, honestly, to the world, are just weird. If you love Jesus, if you enjoy reading the Bible, if you spend a perfectly good Sunday morning in church of all places, you are a misfit. You don't fit as far as the world is concerned. You don't love what the rest of the world loves. And so you must be a misfit. The good news is that Jesus does not see you as a misfit. Jesus sees you as his beloved brothers and sisters. That's how he views you. We are all precious to Christ. Jesus was also a misfit as far as the world was concerned, and so the world rejected Jesus and put him on the cross. And today, Jesus loves all who love him. So what do we need to do for each other as Christians 
when the world rejects us like it rejected Jesus. We need to love one another. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. That is one way that we worship Jesus all of the time. We love all of the people in Jesus' family, especially those who are suffering in some way. Well, you worship God by loving your Christian family. And secondly, you worship God by living a holy life. Now, you don't live this holy life before you have a relationship with God in an attempt to try and please God or to earn your way into heaven. We saw last week that that cannot be done. God's holiness is so great, we can never ever reach his standards by our own strength, by our own goodness, by our own efforts. We cannot be holy enough in ourselves. But what we can do is we can receive God's righteousness as a free gift of grace when we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's what we can do. That's how we can meet God's standards, only through Jesus Christ. And when we do believe that Jesus died for our sins, then we can have the power of the Holy Spirit live within us so that we can live a holy life. Now, the author of Hebrews now discusses two ways that we as Christians are to live holy lives. We are going to reject two of the idols that the world worships. We as misfit Christians will not worship the idols of sex and money. Now, it's interesting that the world in the 21st century worships the very same idols that the world of the 1st century also worships. And so let's see first how we Christians are to live holy lives when it comes to the topic of sex. Now, before we discuss this issue, it is likely that many of you here today do not know what the Bible says about sex. You just don't know. And if that's the case, you're going to be informed today. And so as you are informed, my encouragement to you is don't get angry. Don't get defensive. Just listen today. These are perhaps some hard words that you will hear today, but they are words of love from God to you. He wants to tell you the best way to live, so just listen today and don't get upset. Listen as I read verse 4 again, okay? Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, is this a popular verse as far as our world is concerned? Do they like this verse? I'm going to vote no on that one, okay? But we do need to hear this message from the Bible, okay? The writer of Hebrews' discussion of brotherly love leads naturally into a discussion of marriage and love, okay? And so what does holy love look like within sex and within marriage? First, it looks like giving marriage the honor that it is due. Marriage is to be held in honor, the writer says. And one way that we honor marriage is by staying married and keeping our marriage vows. I know that sometimes divorce cannot be avoided, and I know that some of you were divorced through no choice of your own. I understand that. But what he is saying here is that one way that we honor marriage is by staying married. If at all possible, we Christians avoid divorce. 
Jesus himself quoted from Genesis when speaking about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Let's read Jesus' words together out loud. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You ever heard those words at a wedding before? Okay. So what Jesus is saying is when you get married, if at all possible, you stay married. That's God's intention for marriage. We honor marriage then by keeping our vows and staying married. And we honor marriage as well, according to verse 4, by avoiding adultery. Being unfaithful to our spouse defiles the marriage bed. It turns the purity and the holiness and the goodness of sex into something dirty. That's what happens when you introduce adultery into a marriage situation. In fact, this passage teaches that any sex outside of marriage is, in fact, unholy behavior in the eyes of God. It calls those who have sex outside of marriage sexually immoral. Verse 4 also says that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. How will God judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous? Well, many passages in Scripture talk about this. Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Revelation chapter 22. All of these passages say that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who refuse to repent of sexually immoral behavior, those who don't stop living that way, will not be in heaven, according to these passages of Scripture, if they don't stop and turn around. One way, then, to fall away from your faith in Jesus is one way to not persevere in your faith is to give in to sexual sin, to live a life of sin. It is to worship the idol of sex. Now, I fully realized this morning that these are frightening words. These are frightening because I would say that just about 100% of us have engaged in sexual sin in the past. Just about all of us are guilty in this area of our lives. Remember what Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said to the men who were listening to him that day, If you even look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her. You have broken one of the Ten Commandments. Again, I would say that just about everybody in this room has in some way or another committed sexual sin. And that is totally frightening. It's frightening because of what the Word of God says. That therefore we do not deserve to belong in the kingdom of God. We do not deserve to be in heaven. And so what are we to do with all this guilt that we possess? What do we do with it? First, I would say that if you are sleeping with someone that you are not married to and you love this person, get married to this person as soon as possible. Join together and get married. That's God's desire for you. Marriage is a really good gift. So get married. God highly endorses it. But if you are sleeping with someone that you're not married to, and you don't know if you love them, you don't know where this relationship is going, take a step back. 
step out of the relationship for a while and assess where you're at and say, hey, am I really committed to this person or not? You see, Jesus himself said that when you make love to a person, you become one flesh with that person. It's like your heart is glued to that person, which in marriage is a really good thing. You want to be glued to that person for the rest of your life. But if you're not sure where the relationship is going and your heart is getting glued to this person, what's going to happen to your heart at the end of the relationship if it breaks off? Your heart is going to be ripped apart. God does not want that for you. He wants to protect you, and that's why he shares these words with us. So my encouragement to you then is if you are sleeping with someone that you're not married to, and you're not sure where the relationship is going, please take a step back and reassess. The other thing I would encourage you to do is if you are involved in an adulterous relationship today, cut it off. Repent today. You don't want to face the judgment of God for that behavior. You need to live a holy life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you have been sexually immoral in the past, if you realize in talking about this that this describes you and your behavior in the past, what do you do with that guilt? You do what we do every single Sunday here in church. You bring it to the cross, and you say, Jesus, thank you for dying for that sin. I am guilty, I know it, but I also know that you are a gracious and forgiving God, and I thank you for dying for my sin. You confess your sin to Jesus, and you receive from Jesus his righteousness and his cleansing at that time. Now, some of you might have a question that you're asking, and the question is this. Why does God care who I sleep with? What is the big deal about sex? Well, in the Bible, we see that marriage and sex are a very big deal to God. You know what's found in the very first chapter of the Bible? That would be a marriage. Marriage between Adam and Eve, right? God united them in marriage. He commanded them to be faithful to one another. And and then and only then did Adam and Eve have sex to consummate the marriage as a sign of their faithful, committed love to one another. Sex, then, is a promise. It is a promise of faithful, committed love within marriage. And sex and marriage is also a picture of The ultimate marriage, and do you know where that's found in the Bible? At the very end of the Bible, in Revelation. So marriage is found at both the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. In the very last part of the Bible, we see the marriage of Christ and his church. Every marriage is supposed to be a picture of the love of Jesus for his church. That's why marriage is such a big deal to God. God sees it as hugely important because your marriage points to the love that Christ has for his church. And so we see also that the, that the marriage at its best on earth then is always meant to leave us wanting more. It's always meant for us to see in this marriage a picture of our hunger and our thirst for true union with Christ. It's a picture of how much we love Jesus how much we want to be united to him. That is why sex and marriage are such a big deal to God. And that is why we want to live holy lives in our marriage and with regard to sex. 
Now let's see how we are to live holy lives when it comes to the idol of money. First notice what the problem is in verse 5. We read there, keep your life free from the love of money. And so the problem is not money. The problem is what? The love of money. That's the problem that we have as human beings. And both the rich and the poor can love money far too much. We can all be greedy for more and more money. We can be greedy for more and more stuff in our lives. Does that sound familiar to you? I think greed is a familiar temptation to everybody, both in the church and in our world today. So how do we fight our love for money? We fight greed with contentment. Verse 5 says that we are to be content with what we have. We can be content because we know that God will provide for all of our needs. We see this in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. Let's read that verse together. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The promise of the Bible is that God will meet your needs. And another promise of God is found in our passage in verse 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. So you don't have to be afraid when you are in a season of need. Why not? Because God is with you. And if God is with you, won't he take care of your needs? Absolutely. He will because verse 6 says, the Lord is my helper. He will help me with every difficulty I have because he loves me and he cares for me. Therefore, I don't need to worry about money. God is with me to help me. Church, Jesus talked about money more than he talked about any other subject. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Jesus talked more about money than he did about prayer. Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell. Why? Because money is dangerous. Money is a huge idol. The way that you treat the money that God gives you is the number one test of your faith. It is the primary test of the holiness of your life. Are you then a lover of money? Or do you treasure Jesus more than you treasure money? Recently, I read about a group of Christians who got together and talked about their own greed talked about how they wanted to fight against it. So I want to tell you a story of what they decided to do. But before I tell you the story, please do not think that I'm telling you you have to do this. Okay? It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that these were a small group of misfit Christians who got together and said, okay, let's, let's fight our greed in this way. And here's what they decided to do. They decided that after they paid their money on their fixed expenses and their needs, they decided that they would not buy anything new that year. They would simply not dispose of any of their disposable income. They would not even buy new clothes for the coming year. They would just buy underwear and socks. That was it. Now, honestly, I don't know if I could do that. Okay? I don't know if I could have a fast from stuff for a whole year. That would be very difficult for me. 
But here's what these Christians discovered after they fasted from buying stuff for all year. They discovered that they did not really need all of those new and shiny toys after all. And they discovered that they could learn how to fix things that broke. And if they couldn't fix them, well, maybe they didn't need those things after all. They also discovered after that year was over how much fun they had being generous with those who were in need. Some of these Christians said after the year was over that they wanted to try fasting again for a whole second year. See, these Christians had become content. They trusted God to provide for their needs. They had defeated the idol of money and greed by being content and being generous. Every minute of every day, we Christians worship God. We serve God every minute because we love him for what he has done for us. And two ways that we worship God are by loving the people in our Christian family and by living a holy life. So how is your love these days? Is there someone in this church who could use some love today from you? Take the time then to love them this week. And are you growing in holiness when it comes to the idols of our world? Are you growing in holiness when it comes to sex and money? I would encourage you today to repent where you need to repent, but also at the same time to receive God's gift of forgiveness where you need to receive his grace. And be faithful to your spouse. Be content with what you have. This is the way that we Christians worship God. Let's pray together. God, you are worthy of our worship 24 hours a day, every day. Because of all that you have done for us, because of your great love for us, you are worthy of all that we are and all that we have. And so I pray for your people who are here today to worship you this week. God, there have been some hard words that have been shared with your people today. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would remind them of your grace and forgiveness and mercy. I pray that no one would leave here today crushed by their sin. But I pray instead that they would be thankful people, thankful for your forgiveness and grace and mercy. Remind them of that and cause us and encourage us to live a holy life this week. In your great name we pray. Amen.